Hey there, you're listening to Ghost Notes, the podcast where we look at music from the inside and out. My name's Noah, you probably know me best as Polyphonic. And I'm Cora, you probably know me as Twelve Tone, and today we're going to talk about talking about music, or more specifically talking about music professionally to an audience. Basically, this is the what it's like to be us episode. So I think let's start with a big question, Noah, being a music YouTuber, good or bad? Both. (laughs) Yep, agreed. Like everything on Ghost Notes, the answer to that is incredibly complicated. I think <laughs> I think it's it's the coolest job I've ever had and the coolest job I will ever have. I think that much is pretty obvious. But I also think that there's something, and you and I have both talked about this, both to each other and publicly on Twitter as well, where there's just the saying, like, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life, is very <laughs> untrue. Um, if you yeah. do what you love for work... What you love becomes work. And I think we've even talked about it a little bit on the podcast here. That just kind of fundamentally changes how you interact with whatever it is you're doing. In our case, music. I think you'd agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's one of those things where, like, I completely agree. It's a dream job. And I think at any point, like, if it sounds like I'm, like, complaining, like, oh, woe is me. Everyone should feel bad for me for having to, you know— think about stuff that I find interesting all the time for work. Like, that's not a real complaint. Yeah. But it's also, as much as it's a dream job, it is also a job. And all jobs suck at some level. Like, that's just how jobs work. So there is an extent to which it looks a lot more glamorous than it is, but it also is really great, and it's hard to convey the nuances of that without sounding like I'm complaining about how awesome my life is. I think one of the big things kind of just in general with the like finding a job you're passionate about and what's really interesting is it's not suddenly working as free time. It's what happens is music where I used to sit down and listen to music just for fun. It's a lot harder to do that without thinking about, oh, I made a video on this song and I should have said this or, oh, I could make a video on this song and say this and Oh, yeah, that's yeah. that's the word like, for me. Like, so often I'm, like, listening to the radio and I was like, oh, this would make a good song analysis video. Yeah. Like, when I'm just, like, going to the store or, like, at the gym or whatever and just, like, it pops into my head and be like, oh, I, I need to, like, need to think about whether I can do this for work. Yes, absolutely. And I think on that front, it's annoying in the, like, individual in your home times, but I think something that I want to talk about off the top where I think this will lead to some interesting discussion is We'll see. Talking about music publicly, you know, espousing opinions on music, whether that is like publicly, meaning like on Twitter, on a podcast like this, or even just talking at a party, whatever that is, those were a thing once, but talking in front (laughs) of people, there's this kind of concept that you are an quote unquote expert on music. And in a lot of ways we are, but that doesn't translate to things like, necessarily, I don't know, being able to tell you if a song is good or not. Because as we've well established, there's no such thing as good music. Or, you know, I think that's something that I take very seriously in public discussions where with friends before, I definitely used to be a lot more open and willing to just, you know, joke around and dunk on songs that I don't like and stuff like that. But suddenly when you become a music person, capital M, capital P or whatever, suddenly there's 
pressure, not really pressure, I guess, but there's this concept that what you say about music matters. So I always need to be really careful about what I say about music. Just because I don't like something doesn't mean it's reason for a whole bunch of people to write it off. I think there's an implied pressure there, but there's an implied expertise there, but there's also definitely a pressure on us. Like, this is a thing that I've been thinking about a lot since reading some Twitter threads by Dr. Matthew Morrison, just to cite my sources on this. When we're doing this as a job, instead of just, you know, as a fun hobby with friends or whatever, when this is like how we make our living and we're trying to gain like clout and money from it, there's a really strong pressure to do that because that's effective. It's a really useful narrative to sell myself as like the music expert, the person you should listen to, the person who is showing you the way to understand this song. And I try not to, I try to be careful about that. But there's like, in addition to it being really easy to do accidentally, like, and it is really easy to do accidentally. I don't want to like discount any of that. Yeah. But there's also an active pressure. There's also it makes me better at the job aspects of my job if I am presenting myself and presenting the arguments I'm making as if they are definitive. Yeah, yeah, I think I agree with that. And I think especially on, this is something I'm interested with your perspective especially because you tend to do more theory analysis stuff and there's this real trend in theory analysis and kind of explainer videos and things like this. And I don't think that you do this, but I think a lot of people take these sorts of videos and say, hey, look, music theory proves why this song is good, which if you've listened to this podcast at all, you should know that neither Corey or I espouse that. Yeah. Yeah. That's not what music theory does. No. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, it's a thing that like, like I said, I definitely... I'm very conscious of that, and I try very hard to not say that. And this is something I've talked with, like, Adam Neely about, too. Like, it's something that he tends to try to be very careful about as well, of sort of actively getting in things and being like, well, this is how I hear it. Maybe you hear it differently. And leaving that space for other interpretations. And again, I, I try and do that as much as I can. But, like, there's also an extent to which, and I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, but, like, there's an extent to which I am aware that there's a significant portion of my audience, especially the audience that watches my song analysis videos, who is just watching to hear an expert say that a song they like is good in a way that sounds technically objective so that they can go and show their friends, like, look, I have good taste because Corey said that Comfortably Numb is a good song because it's doing cool harmonic stuff. And that wasn't what I was saying in the Comfortably Numb video. I was saying it was a good song and I was saying it did cool harmonic stuff, but I wasn't implying a causal relationship there. But like, no matter how much space I leave for that, there is going to be an incentive on the audience's part as well to try to imply that causal link, to try to take what I'm saying and use that as justification for viewing the song as objectively good, because assuming they like the song, there is value to them to hearing it as objectively good, because that makes their taste objectively good. I said objectively good way too many times in that sentence, but you know, I think this is something that comes up. It comes up very clearly. I don't know about you, but basically anytime I do a Q&A, I would say a solid yeah. half of the questions are just people asking me for my thought on X artist. And a yep. solid half of those are on some small artist that I've never heard before and don't have any thoughts on. And I think a lot of that is very much exactly what you said. Like they just want... A lot of people just want the validation 
that comes from a music person saying this is good. And that's something that I think sometimes people get from critics and stuff like that as well. Like it's not necessarily exclusive to us and our kind of content, but it's definitely something there. And I understand the impulse, especially given how much identity people tie into having good music taste and how people almost sometimes even nearly moralize taste, you know, where it's like good people have good taste. And it's like, well, in reality, taste is purely subjective. But again, we've talked about that lots. And there's an expectation alongside of that of I have such a huge breadth of musical knowledge where I know a lot of stuff about music. It's my job. Yeah. But in reality, I have all kinds of friends and even like people on my Discord and fans and stuff like that who regularly display that they have a broader knowledge in terms of just like bands they've listened to and stuff like that than me. And and that's okay. Like my job isn't yeah. necessarily to know everything there is to know about music. My job is to find an interesting story in a song or artist or an album and learn everything I can about that song and condense it and put it into something that's consumable. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about that. I will come back to that in a second. But before we move on from the people wanting to wanting us to affirm their tastes thing, one thing I want to be clear about is that I don't think that's a bad thing to want, right? Like, I don't think... If you're watching those videos and you're like, oh, yes, Polyphonic likes the same music I like, that's not a bad reaction. You're not a bad person for that. I think it's bad for us to play into it. I think it's a bad thing for us to sort of foster and to try and encourage you to approach our work through that lens. But I, I think it's perfectly natural and perfectly normal to want people you like and respect and who tend to have similar tastes to you to like the things you like. I think that's fair. I agree with that. I felt like so the way we were talking about it, like the way certainly that I was talking about it may have come across as judgmental. And I want to be clear to anyone listening that that's not what I'm saying and presumably not what Noah's saying either. Yeah, I think the thing that I want to hammer home with this is that, and I think you'd agree on this, is just you don't actually need our validation to know that you have music taste. If you listen to music and it is meaningful to you and it touches you in some way, Congratulations. You've got music taste. Yeah. Like You've that's got taste. Yeah. That's the game. And different music communities, I, again, I'm not in the I'm not in the habit of like calling people out or things like this and yeah. I don't I don't really know him as a person so I'm not going to call him out, but I definitely have seen kind of fans specifically of Anthony Fantano do this a lot where they kind of really, really latch onto this person's opinion. And I bet Fantano would tell you he's just one reviewer. He's just one person. And I think that it's often easy to, rather than, you know, and again, I I, I don't want to be like disparaging people. It's okay if you like Fantano. It's okay if you share opinions. But I think it's very easy for people to, rather than think critically about music, I think a lot of people look for people that can think critically about music for them and then try to just kind of like pull that, which it's a good way of starting to learn how to understand music. When I first started learning about music in high school like this, I definitely read a lot of like music critics and Robert Christgau and stuff like that and learned a lot of my analysis. But there comes a point where I think it's really important if people want to be engaged music fans for people to really think critically themselves and decide what it is about music that they love regardless of 
whoever says it, you know? Yeah, I mean, even if you don't want to do analysis or, like, be a super engaged, like, active listener or whatever, like, I think there's a lot of value in just being confident in your own taste. Yes. And being able to say, I like this, and so it's good for me. Whether or not, without needing someone like me or someone like Noah or someone like Anthony Fantano to sort of sit down and be like, here's why you're okay for liking this. Again, I don't think any of that's a bad thing to want, and I don't think it's bad to like be excited when you see, like, oh, this person, an expert on music, likes the thing that I like. That's fine. That's totally cool. Go with that. But there's a lot of people who will ask me, like, oh, analyze this song. And I'm like, I'm never going to analyze this song either because it's like, it's not a popular enough song that I could get clicks, or it's just not a song that I like. I think you and I have talked about this. I don't know if we've talked about it on the podcast, but like I get quite a few requests to talk about Lateralis by Tool. Yeah. I get why people are into that song. It does nothing for me. And so I will never make a video about Lateralis because I don't want to have to listen to it enough times to do a good analysis. But if you like Lateralis, listen to it. I'm not saying you're a bad music fan for liking it. You just have slightly different tastes than me and look for different things in music, and that's fine. I think on that front, that actually brings me to something, again, with the people kind of like looking for validation or always asking, like, what are your thoughts on this? I generally won't share my thoughts on something if they're negative. Yeah. Because I don't think that's my place in the space, you know? Like, again, yeah. we've mentioned this on the show for sure before. Like, yeah. I don't have a problem with critics, but I am not a critic, and I don't think anything good— if someone, if I'm doing a Twitter Q&A and someone is like, oh, what are your thoughts about some artist that I personally don't really like that much? I think it's better for everyone for me just to not answer than for me to go disparaging this artist that, you know, I'm sure puts a lot of work into what they do and yeah. I'm sure really cares deeply about it. And just because it doesn't resonate with me doesn't mean it, it won't resonate with a bunch of people. And I think that that's something that it's, again, this is not to woe is me, but it definitely, sometimes I do feel put on the spot when people publicly ask for my opinions on, especially if it's like stuff that is like critically acclaimed or whatever that I just yeah. don't like that much because I'm really worried that people are going to take that as saying, oh, well, that means that I shouldn't like it, you know, which is obviously not the case. Yeah, I think that... For me, when I'm doing like a Twitter Q&A, especially like I, those feel fairly low key. And so I don't tend to feel bad about just being like, oh, it's not for me, but I see why someone else would like it. Yeah. But like I almost like I might even provide like, oh, this is why this sort of thing doesn't really work for me. But I think that brings up a really important point, especially in the context of like videos where we have much larger audiences, you and I, is who we critique. Who yeah. we say bad things about. And I think that there's a lot of sort of moral weight on that that doesn't really get enough consideration by some creators, not going to name names. One of the things, like, I've done a couple videos critiquing people. I, one of my most viewed videos ever is about why Ben Shapiro is wrong, and he is. And I've, like, I, but I went through, like, the sort of moral calculus on that of, like, okay, he has a larger audience than me. He is propagating this actively harmful idea, and 
he knows he's putting this out to like hundreds of thousands of people or even millions. So he is expecting critique. And so running through all this stuff, like this is okay to criticize and this is reasonable and there is value in me criticizing it. Whereas recently running around music Twitter, there was an article, I'm not going to say what it is because again, I like, I decided it wasn't worth going after. It was something that would have been really fun to make fun of, right? Something really fun to sort of tear apart because like a lot of the arguments were bad and it would have been like, haha, look at how bad these arguments are. We all could have like got together and laughed about how bad this person's argument was. But also, it wasn't a harmful argument. Like, it wasn't a bad thing to propagate. And it was someone, like, who is not an established person with a huge platform. Yeah. And they were already getting torn to shreds on music Twitter. So, like, me joining in on that would have felt like bullying. It feels weird to discuss this without using examples, like a specific example. But again, I don't want to contribute to it. This has happened a couple times where there'll be a thing like floating around music Twitter and where like a bunch of people are making fun of it. And these are mostly like, you know, music professors or whatever, people with small like Twitter followings. And like, I'm always like really careful about like, should I get involved? Should I weigh in on this? Like, yeah, because if I do, then I'm unleashing my audience on them. And I have a much larger audience. And this is one of the things about being a music creator rather than just somebody posting about music on Twitter is suddenly this discussion that if you were on your own, just on a personal thing, you might weigh in on and have a little fun with because someone said something that was, you know, ill-advised or something like that. Yeah. It completely changes the context if you're going after them with a big following. Yeah. Like in the case of this article, like I sort of, had a little back and forth with Adam Neely about it in private, but like that was different because, you know, Adam and I are both fairly conscious of this and fairly think, like carefully thinking about like, do we want to, again, unleash our audience and where is that useful and where is that harmful? And it's a thing where I think a lot of people will just be like, oh, you're allowed to say whatever you want, you know, just like you're criticizing them as a person, you're just speaking as a person, it's fine. And I get that. I understand that reaction. But when you have a large audience, the things you say publicly are not just personal critiques anymore. They are almost inherently calls to action. Yeah. And so you need to think about what that action is, what people are going to do because you said this. And you need to think about beyond your... this is the thing, actually, like to go back to this article, like I was talking with Rowan from Medlife Crisis, yeah. uh, who does yeah. like medical stuff, and his immediate reaction was like, you can totally criticize this, it's fine, which I get because he's a doctor. And so when people spread yeah. bad information about his field, people die. That's a very different situation, and he's he's very conscious of that, and I think he's very good about sort of carefully and responsibly rebutting these things and coming in and being like, no, this is not true. Here's, or this is not okay. This is not a reasonable way to do things or whatever. And I I have a lot of respect for him on that. But like when it comes to music theory, there are, again, some ideas that I think are worth criticizing and I will if necessary, but I'm also very hesitant because a lot of the time, like it's just not that big a deal. The big example that comes to mind Are you familiar with the Christmas chord? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So anyone listening to this is probably familiar, but just in case, four or five years ago, I think, maybe six at this point, uh, Vox released a video called The Secret Chord That Makes Christmas Music Sound Christmassy. And in it, they had a guy who's like a friend of mine, Adam Agusia, talking about Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. 
and how it sounds more like classic Christmas music than most modern Christmas music does. And a lot of people will assume that it is classic Christmas music, but in fact, she wrote it. And so, and one of the examples, one of the reasons he gave was that it uses this harmonic device. Technically, he was talking about the four minor six, but he called it the two half diminished seven complicated. The video was being made by people who didn't really understand a lot of the distinctions he was making. And so they edited it to look like he was making a really really simple point and claiming like this one chord is the thing that makes everything sound Christmassy. And for years since every Christmas, he gets like a bunch of messages from people being like, oh, you're wrong. And to be fair, like part of what happened there was he handled the backlash pretty poorly and he acknowledges that. Yeah, he has a great video. The video is called How I Became the Mariah Carey Christmas Chord Guy and Why I Hate It. It's a really, really like phenomenal video to watch. He gives his rundown on the whole situation. And I think it's a great example of why it's important for Corey and I to think about this kind of stuff, because this is an example of for a time, this guy's life was basically ruined because Vox edited some of his words wrong and there was crossed wires and stuff like that. It's, it's a really, really sad story. Yeah, and, and again, I do want to acknowledge, because this does come up whenever these discussions happen, that like he did handle it pretty poorly. But there, yeah. there's extenuating circumstances. He gets into that in the video. Like Anyway, I, I think the way the whole thing went down is a great example of how like individual criticisms can dogpile into something really damaging, even if in, on their own they're not. And so like when you have an audience like mine or like Noah's where... Anything we publish, basically, will get seen by tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. We need to be careful to not accidentally mobilize those tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people to go do something crappy. And I think that's something that is really frustrating about this, especially creating on YouTube, but in general, the internet is like this. The incentive to do negative stuff is far higher than the incentive to do positive stuff. Yeah. The YouTube algorithm, videos trashing other people's art, trashing other people's arguments, dunking on people, those do so much better than videos celebrating a nuanced, small, cool thing. There is a huge, huge incentive for creators on YouTube to be negative. There's entire not just channels, entire genres of YouTube built around dunking on people. And again, there's some cases where that's okay, some cases where it's not. I'm not going to get into the weeds of that, but it's definitely a thing where if Corey and I, especially given that we already have an audience, started posting videos being like, why this song sucks, I guarantee you those videos would do significantly better numbers than our regular videos. Oh, yeah. Not too much in the music space, but there's definitely people who have built their entire careers on that. And thought he tits. Yeah. That's one of those cases where it's okay to criticize. Yes. Yeah. In case you don't know what we're talking about there, I don't want to get too much into this. No. A lot of people have talked about it a lot, but there's basically a video that is honestly, it's a textbook example of irresponsible music journalism or music yeah. educator education. Tantacruel has a great video about yeah. it. Yeah. Like, if you're looking for more... But anyway, yeah. uh, go on. The gist of it is that there's a channel that did a video. Basically, the the 
pitch of this video it's like why is, modern music is awful. Yeah, using music theory to explain why modern music is awful. And honestly, if you it listen, wasn't even music, Nick, the, the study wasn't even done yeah. by music theorists. <laughs> the study he was citing is done by like a science department. If you listen to this podcast for any amount of time, I trust that you have the tools to know outright just from like the description why it's wrong. We don't need to dismantle it. Yeah. Yeah, go, go watch the Tantacruel yeah. video or, you know, go watch my video about Rick Beato. It's not unrelated. Yeah. But. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing. I mean, in general, I think what is specific to music is the temptation to dunk on modern music in yeah. particular. A lot of people really like that. And again, 12 Tone recently did a great video on Rick Beato talking a lot about this sort of thing. Yeah, I also want to shout out David Bennett did a video. Yes. That was like a couple weeks later, which I don't know if it was inspired by mine or not. I like to imagine it was, but it might not have been, who knows. But basically sort of taking a more positivist stance and sort of making some of the arguments I made, but then like here are like eight albums of modern music, everything released in the last like 18 months that you should listen to that prove pretty clearly that there is still good music being made. So highly recommend that video too. Approve is a strong word, but you know what I mean. That's something that basically for as long as people have been talking about music, people have been saying the music of th this generation sucks. Look at the greats of the previous generation. Yeah. I remember Adam at one point posted on Twitter a quote from like Aristotle about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think one of the things about the internet is that if you're publishing for like a journal or something like that, there is yeah. an accountability. There are peers that are going to hold you accountable if you make bad arguments. And even, In theory. yeah, well, <laughs> I think even just the knowledge of that, though, yeah. like buffers. And this is not to say that academia doesn't make bad arguments because we've had whole podcast episodes about this. Yeah. There are different kind of bad arguments. A lot of these are not just the off the cuff like, you know, dunking on whatever people don't like, pour on the negativity. Whereas the internet, like I said, I can't stress enough as a creator how big the temptation to just throw your morals out the window and just make easy, clickable content is, especially when there's the added incentive of, it's not just that I want an audience, it's that this is my income. The more yeah. people that see my stuff the easier it is for me to pay rent. You know, there's a lot of complicated things there. And I think that can make it very difficult to really sit down and think about this stuff as much as you really should when you're creating this. Yeah, and I've said this for a long time, but like if I really wanted to be as successful a YouTube channel as I could, I would just stop making anything but song analysis videos and stop making song analysis videos about anything but dad rock. And I would get, like, way more views, way more consistently. I would see a lot more growth. But, like, I think there's so many other things that I want to say. And I'm sort of inherently sort of fighting upstream on that, fighting against the the incentives of the platform. And I think that, you know, that's not good or bad. And it's not to say, like, someone out there who is trying to get more views is necessarily making worse content, right? I think that that's a really easy trap to fall into of just like, oh, well, they're doing popular stuff, so they must suck. And I'm just like, you know, Adam Neely, I keep bringing him up in this video, but he gets way more views than me. He also makes really good stuff. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of space for doing good content at a higher level and 
But ultimately, there are decisions you have to make between, like, do I want to get more views or do I want to talk about this thing that I care more about? It's it's definitely a thing that I do think about, right? Like, when I think about, like, oh, should I do this topic? It's like, oh, can I sell it? There's a balance there, and different people are going to do that balance differently, and I don't want to be judgmental about it. But ultimately, there are going to be trade-offs that you have to make if you want to talk about the thing you care about more or if you want to get more clicks. I think the other aspect of this too, this this actually brings us to something that I really wanted to talk about is it's not necessarily just stuff you care about more. I think also, and both of us have encountered situations with this. I know a few years ago, both of us kind of tried to look at our content. And the reality is, if you look at the first year or two of Polyphonic, it would basically give you the impression that the history of popular music is the history of men and usually white men making songs. I think that that's something that a little bit into Polyphonic, once my audience started to grow, there was definitely a moment where I realized as a content creator, as an educator, I have an obligation to highlight more people of color, more queer artists, more women, even though inevitably basically every one of these videos does worse. There's a few exceptions, but for the most part, similar to you, like all of the videos that do best are dad rock videos. And I like doing dad rock videos sometimes, but I also think that there's an obligation that we hold as educators to actually educate, you know, and to push people's horizons. And yes, not everybody is going to watch those videos, but if I can teach a couple thousand people about someone like Scott Joplin or Rosetta Tharp or someone like that, that really does mean a lot to me personally. And I think that that's something that is is very rewarding, but it's something that it's spiritually rewarding. It's not materially rewarding. Yeah, I completely agree. I do think it's also worth emphasizing that, again, and I think this is something you were addressing there, that there is sort of a limit there to our ability to play tastemaker Yeah, because the way that this stuff works, anytime you're talking about any artist or song or whatever, like the people who are most likely to click on that video are people who already know it. Yeah. So if you make a video about Sister Rosetta Tharp, for instance, which you did, it was a great video, but a lot of the people who click that video are going to be people who already know about Sister Rosetta Tharp and want to learn more. Yeah. They're not going to be people who are like, oh, who is this? And so it becomes really difficult from because we're sort of fighting with the algorithm to sort of take unknown artists and make them known. Yeah. And not, not that sister Rosetta Tharp is unknown, right? Like I I think she's, you know, she's not the biggest name, but she's a lot less known than she deserves to be. Yeah. I think the other thing too, that's difficult is, I mean, I've said this a lot before, like generally if it were up to me these days, pretty much all of my videos would be on more obscure historical topics, more political stuff. Like, I have no problem bringing my politics into my videos as long as I'm clear about it. But the reality is that to maintain the audience to be able to tell stories like Sister Rosetta Tharp, I can go back now and I guarantee you, right around the time I did Sister Rosetta Tharp, I'm sure I also did... In between doing Sister Rosetta Tharp, I was releasing the Dark Side of the Moon project. And then I did a video on System of a Down, you know? Like, there's a definite balance where you do need to, sometimes you do need to kowtow to the algorithm because it is doing these more kind of like 
it's like being a musician, you know, like, yeah, you got to play the hits. Yeah. Your album needs to sell. So you've got to have your big hit single. And then at the end of the album, you can have your weird eight minute jam. That's for the fans. Yeah. And it's like, you know, you go see like Metallica live. They're going to play some of their new stuff or whatever, but they're also going to play Enter Sandman. Yeah. Like, you're not going to go to the show. They're like, we're just not doing that this time. Yeah. <laughs> we're not playing Master of Puppets either. We're not it's just like that. That's just not how this stuff works. And it, I do worry that this sounds like an excuse, right? Like, there's like, oh, our hands are, but like. I sometimes worry that it is an excuse. Oh, I absolutely. sometimes do worry that I'm making an excuse for myself with this. <laughs> to an extent, it definitely is, right? Like, there's an extent to which I want to make videos about songs that I know and love. And a lot of those are songs that are popular. And a lot of the songs that are popular are written by white men, written and performed. So there, there's an extent to which it's sort of more comfortable and easy to just grab those and do those. And so there's an extent to which it definitely is an excuse. But there's also an extent to which just we are operating within a fairly confined system in ways that are yeah. often overlooked. Like, just, just to get a sense of, like, what, how many views would you consider to be a flop? I generally say if after a month it's less than 50,000 views, that's, okay. that's kind of a flop for me. My general metric is, like, under 20,000 in a week. But, you know, yeah. similarly, in, in an objective sense... Those are still very large numbers. Yes. Right? Yeah. Like those that's a lot of people watching a video. And so I have a distinct memory of in the before times in COVID being at a hockey game in a stadium with twenty thousand people and looking around and thinking, man, if every one of these people watched one of my videos, I would consider it a colossal failure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I I've like conversations with like family and friends. Like they'll be like, Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't get to watch your latest video yet. And it's like one person doesn't matter. Like, yeah. the numbers are just too big at this point. Like, I don't, you, you are not affecting my ability to succeed yep. by not watching my video. So only watch it if you care. Yeah, and th th definitely the, you know, I'm I'm rooting for your channel. I showed your channel to my friend. I'm like, well, you know, I appreciate the gesture. It's nice. Thanks, yeah. But actually, it, yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I genuinely appreciate it. Like, it's it's really cool to hear. But it also doesn't help much with the YouTube algorithm. Yeah. One view at, at the scale that we're operating at. At like really small scales, it does matter. Like, yeah. So if, if you just subscribe to small channels, like watch their stuff as soon as they come out. Yes. If you can. Absolutely. But like by the time the channel's getting thousands or tens of thousands of views, you can take your time. They don't mind. Yeah. It's really okay. The numbers thing is, and this is not necessarily related to creating music specifically, but the numbers thing yeah. in general for any creator, I don't want to talk too much about it because there's a lot of YouTubers talking about it a lot, but it's, no. it's another very real, very stressful part of the job. And I think it pushes, like we're talking about, like the algorithm really, really does kind of, I don't want to say it pushes away from thoughtful content, but it certainly doesn't necessarily incentivize you to no. to be pushing boundaries and and I think that that's something where especially in music music is something where everything that's ever been like well not everything that's ever been interesting but most interesting movements in music even if they're eventually adopted by the mainstream most of them begin in the fringes 
You know, most of them yeah. start with weird underground people doing strange things. And it's really cool to highlight that sometimes, but the algorithm doesn't really like that. a lot of research. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of a problem that, like, educational content faces in general is that, like, you don't get rewarded for research. Yes. And this is, I think, one of the big, when we coming back to sort of the question of, like, the ethics of doing this job, your ability to get views isn't really dependent on the quality of your work. Yeah. It is dependent on the aesthetic of quality you're able to capture. That's my specialty. <laughs> your ability to convey the idea that you are good at this and you are an expert and you are trustworthy. And none of that r- relies inherently on you knowing what you're talking about. Well, I was just going to say, I think that that's something that it's a challenge that any educational field faces online. It's especially yeah. a challenge that our field, which a lot of our field is inherently subjective, but being subjective does not mean that there's no such thing as expertise. For sure. Yeah. I think this is a thing that, you know, gets talked about a lot in sort of like, especially like online humanity spaces is like, it's if someone is giving you incorrect information about gravity, you can look that up really easily. Yes. But if someone is giving you a really lazy interpretation of Stairway to Heaven and you aren't trained in that sort of analysis yourself, you don't have experience with it, how easily can you tell? How, how do you work out that this is someone who's just like, who hasn't put in the work and is just making stuff up as opposed to someone who actually knows how to analyze music. And I get anxious when I say stuff like that because like, what does it mean to know how to analyze music, right? Like yeah. is there, there's not just one good way to do it. There's a lot, but I think that there are ways to do it that are just lazy and ineffective. Yeah. And if you can do those really confidently it can be hard for like a lay person to know yeah. and to know the difference between that and between someone like, you know, polyphonic who actually knows what they're doing and has done the research and done a lot of reading and thought about the stuff really deeply. And like, how do you, how do you distinguish between those without, and this is the thing I, I do see sometimes in the music theory space. Again, I'm not going to name names, but like there are people who, I don't think are very good theorists. I think are doing pretty sloppy and lazy analysis, but that doesn't come across to their audience because they just speak really authoritatively and really confidently and they're, you know, charismatic. And so it's easy to sort of grab onto that and be like, oh, this person seems to know what they're talking about. So let's assume they do. I think that there's something, it's something that I I often struggle with coming from my side where I have done some theory analysis, but when I do, it's not really because I know theory that well. Like, I know the basics. It's more because... Yeah, like, you know what a triplet is. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it's it's more because I will research and read and stuff like that. Yeah. But I do think it is something where... I think it's something that even I struggle with sometimes, even to this day, where I struggle with imposter syndrome about talking about yeah. this stuff from a kind of, you know, more subjective, more kind of like open for interpretation thing where I think that there's a lot of people that are able to, you know, use the basics of theory to make points that aren't actually all that salient or even aren't all that interesting. Like people who say like things, 
And I used to do this. I definitely used to do this in earlier videos because there's this temptation to lean on theory, right? To lean on yeah. it for like an objective expertise, but do things like, oh, this song, this is a really sad song. And they hammer that home by playing it in D minor. And it's like, that's that's <laughs> nothing. You're not saying anything. Yeah. yeah and I want to push back on some of you describing your work as more subjective. Because I don't think your work is any more subjective than mine is, right? I think my work has a lot more terminology to it. And I know a lot more fancy words that I can throw around that make it sound like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but I think that the stuff you're doing is often much more grounded in history. And like history is, yeah, history, like, there's an extent to which history is subjective, but history is based on objectivity. And like we can get into like the details there, but like you know it, the historical stuff, I agree. Yeah, but I'm I'm talking more kind of the like lyrical analysis and stuff like that. But yeah. but any lyrical analysis, no matter what, is going to be subjective. That's the nature of lyrics. That's the entire fun of lyrics. Any harmonic analysis is like beyond yeah. just being like this is the one chord is still going to be subjective. And honestly, like just calling it the one chord is a subjective decision. Like. It's not always clear where the one chord is. That's an interpretive analysis as well that is based on you judging from your own experience. That's one of Adam Neely's favorites, right? One of, one of Adam Neely's favorite moves. Again, yeah. we, we love Adam, so we talk about him a lot. But one of his favorites is saying, what yeah. key is this thing in? Yeah, I know. I was like, I've been pushing that, I think, kind of, honestly, even further than he has been. Just sort of like arguing is like, keys just don't exist. Oh, yeah. Like, like they do, but they don't. And we, we just like, we talk yeah. about keys as if they're like these real things that a song has. And they're just not. They're interpretive phenomena. And so, yeah. They're a framework that yeah. you and can describe. For many song songs, through. I don't think they're all that useful. And so, like, when you look at these things, like, what key is Sweet Home Alabama? And, and it's like, who cares? That's not a useful question to ask. I suppose that's interesting because on, on my end, that's kind of like, it's almost like like a metaphor isn't necessarily anything, but if you read, you can like like there's some yeah there's some lyrics where if you read to take an example, if you read "Sweet Home Alabama" as a metaphor, you could read it as a metaphor, but reading it as a metaphor, there's not really any point. But if you yeah. read "Mr. Tambourine Man" as a metaphor, well, there's probably a lot more no, points. That song's that. just about a tambourine. It's just Dylan really likes tambourine. Just like if you read keys into giant steps, you're actually going to, you know, that's pretty useful. Yeah, and it's just, well, giant steps is a complicated yeah. example for keys. <laughs> but yeah, like, it, I, I completely agree. I think that like, you look at these songs where, like, again, Sweet Home Alabama, it, it's not subtle what that song yeah. is, but there yeah. is historical context there, right? Like, you can get into the stuff with Neil Young that, you know, he's mentioned in the song, but unless you really, like, look into, like, what happened with that, you're missing out on some of the meaning of Sweet Home Alabama, or some of the intended meaning anyway. I've considered doing a video on that because I know it would kill. It would do so yeah. well. Well, and I think that that's one of the things that bothers me about what I do sometimes is it would do well from a bunch of people that already know the story and just want yeah. to hear the story presented nicely. Yeah. I mean, it's a thing that I found, this is sort of tangentially related, but like when I do my drawings, Yeah. which I don't know if you've seen my channel, I do some drawings on my channel. Rhinoceros is right? Yes, yes. But with no horns, just, you know, make it different. 
when I'm doing those, like a lot of those are references. Yeah. And what I've found is that the best references are the ones that everyone thinks they're the only one who gets. Yeah. Like I get so much mileage out of the Mandelbrot set. Yeah. Because everyone thinks that they are the only person who has ever heard of the Mandelbrot set. And everyone's heard of it. If you haven't, it's a math thing. You can yeah. Google it. I don't want to like, get this sidetracked explaining what the Mandelbrot set is, but it's it's a fractal pattern. You've probably seen it on the wall of your stoner friend's dorm in college. But it's one of those things where like everyone sees it and is like, oh, that's the Mandelbrot set. I get that reference and I am unique for getting that reference. But like pretty much everyone has that reaction and... So it it feels it feels personal and it feels and people are excited to see it because they feel like this is something that's special to them being shared with everyone in the same way that you know the Sweet Home Alabama story a lot of people know that story but like not a lot of people or a lot of people don't realize how many people know that story and yeah. so it feels like this is something intimate that you're an expert on that's being shared with everyone and you get to be a part of but it's actually just a thing everyone knows not everyone but a lot of people know You'll see how much people like this because the minute you do a video on pretty much anything, someone will comment some piece of expertise that they knew on it more than you, right? Yeah. And that's fine. That's great. I'm that's, not yeah. going to learn everything. My job is to take a topic and within basically two to three days, learn absolutely everything I possibly can on, develop it into an interesting narrative, cut that narrative down to something that's 10 minutes long, and put it out there, I'm going to miss stuff. <laughs> if you're leaving those sorts of comments, that's great. Please do me a favor, start them with another cool thing is instead of a thing you missed is. Yes. Right? Yes. Just, just add instead of, yeah, it's just... It's so much less obnoxious. I have even had people say a thing you missed or you should have mentioned or things like this on yeah. stuff that I deliberately like knew, researched, and cut out of the script because it didn't fit in with the pacing or it was too much of a tangent or like there's a thousand reasons why you might cut something from a script. Not knowing it is only one. <laughs> I've had people leave those comments for things that were literally in the script. Well, yeah. So, <laughs> Just, yeah, just like, yeah, a level of humility there. Like, humility is maybe not the right word, but you know what I mean. A level of like, but I think this comes back to a thing that you mentioned like half an hour ago that I said I was going to come back to and we haven't yet. Yeah, I forgot what is, that was. What was it? <laughs> uh, the idea of sort of people viewing us as like knowing all the things. Oh, yeah. Right? Like I get so many people so often be like, how do I become a musical genius like you? And it's like, well, what you do is you pick a very narrow topic, research it a bunch, and then present it as if there are no counter arguments in a format that does not allow for people to interrupt you. It's just so much of this is like, it's so, I think we talked about this with Adam, was like, I think a lot of people so significantly underestimate the amount of research and the amount of like, learning that goes into every video. And it's, I think it's easy. It's easy to do even as someone who does that, right? Like I'll watch yeah. videos from other music creators and be like, wow, how did you just know that off the top of your head and have that instinctive reaction and have to remind myself is like, no, that's scripted, which means that they read it. Yeah, They did the reading. I just haven't done, like I, I had this one, Adam did his like recent video on the Tritone band. Like oh, there's that so was many things. Phenomenal, just, like, by the way. Phenomenal video. So good. So uh, good. Highly recommend and it's a topic I've been meaning to like do a video about for a long time. And I was watching it 
And I kept thinking like, oh, this is so much more detailed than anything I could have put together. But that's not true. It's just so much more detailed than anything I could have put together without doing the reading that Adam did. I think there's a thing where I think a lot of people think that what we do is every single video we develop new thoughts and original takes on stuff. And we do do that sometimes. Like every now and then I've got a video where like, like to do one that I did recently, like I think that my lyrical interpretation of Mr. Tambourine Man is something that is novel that I haven't really seen that much. Yeah. But a lot of what I do is just synthesizing information. A lot of what I do is just take things that other people have said and organize them in a way kind of organize them into a story. And there is something like my House of the Rising Sun video. I don't actually, which I recently did as well, I didn't come up with any new thoughts there at all. I just did research and organized it in a way. I actually had somebody else do research for me and and (laughs) organized it in a way that told a compelling story. Like so much of what we do is not coming up with this stuff out of the blue. It's synthesizing information. And so often, I don't know about you, but I'll sometimes retain fun facts and stuff like that. But people are always like, oh, what's the coolest thing you've learned? And most often what I do is I do a trick I learned in university, the post-exam brain dump, where you put a video (laughs) out there and then I dump most of the information from it because... It's no longer necessary to me. Yeah, no, I I absolutely, like, I I remember basically which videos I made. Yeah. But, like, I couldn't tell you a lot of the details in a lot of them. I do want to emphasize sort of that synthesis thing because I think that's really important because it can sound in this discussion like we're not doing anything, right? Like, we're just sort of goofing off and, like, profiting off of other people's research. And to an extent, yeah, like, the, a lot of, especially, like, outside my song analysis videos, which are all original interpretations, the, a lot of the videos I make are literature reviews, right? Like, I will read mm-hmm. some scholarly research, and then I'll tell you about it, but without all the scholarly vocabulary. And so there's an extent to which I'm not really doing all that much original scholarship on that sort of video, But that doesn't mean I'm not doing anything, right? Yeah. Like, I think being able to take these ideas and synthesize them in a way that a lot of people can relate to is super valuable. Like, I did a while back, I did a video about the Yamaha DX7, and I worked with a friend of mine, Dr. Megan Lavengood, who did her dissertation on the DX7. And she sent me, like, a paper she'd written about sort of the timbre of that as compared to the Fender Rhodes. Uh, I think this came up in the video, the episode we did with Adam. God, we keep mentioning, this is an Adam fan Yeah, this is now. an, uh, yeah, yeah. I was thinking that Ghost Notes Huge podcast where we Neely. talk about Adam Neely inside and <laughs> <Yep>. out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure he'd appreciate that, but, <laughs> but no, like I, she sent me the paper and like I sat with it for a couple weeks and then I sent her a script And she responded, like, this is great. You got, like, everything I was saying, like, all the nuances of the paper without sounding nearly as complicated. And, like, I mean, she could have done that. She could have simplified her, like, paper. But that's a skill I have. That's a skill that I've developed over years. And, like, I want to give myself and you and everyone else who does this professionally credit for that because that's not easy. It takes a lot of work to do that, to synthesize those ideas effectively. What that skill is is journalism. Right. Like that is that's one of the big things that I learned in journalism school is I mean, there's different aspects of journalism. There's definitely like 
a lot of like investigative stuff and stuff like that. But a lot of journalism is just interviewing people, talking to people who know something about the topic, and then presenting that in a way that is understandable to people who don't yeah. know something about the topic. And it is yeah, knowing how to tell the story. Yeah, it's absolutely a skill. And yeah, I don't want to make it seem like we don't do anything because I think you and I both no. know that we work pretty hard. Well. I know that you work pretty hard. Let's not give me too much credit. <laughs> but there's definitely, it's weird. I think people give us too much credit in the wrong places and not enough yeah. credit in the right places, you know, where it's like, yeah, it, it's, it's a lot of this stuff isn't my original ideas. I'm just curating these ideas and showing them to you because I think they're really cool ideas and I, I want people to hear them. And this also comes back to the ethics question because- when you are doing this sort of interpretation, when you are figuring out how to tell the story, you can tell the story wrong and you can tell the wrong story. Yes. Like there's a lot of weight in terms of like whose voices you choose to amplify, whose stories you choose to tell, how you choose to tell them, what ideas you propagate about those stories. Like there's a lot of weight on that that I think is really important and doesn't get enough credit. And again, this is one of those things where like, I am not trying to give myself too much credit for this. I think this is something that I struggle with a lot of the time, like figuring out how to tell stories in a way that is both effective narratively and ethical and justifiable yeah. from a moral perspective. And I don't think I do that right all the time, especially when I'm dealing with, you know, stories about like music of marginalized people. And I, a lot of the time what I'll do if I don't feel comfortable like there is I'll just stay away from it. Like, I've yeah. for a long time been fascinated with gamelan tuning, but I've never made a video about gamelan tuning because I just don't feel like, like, whenever I start reading about gamelan tuning, I feel like a tourist. I feel like I don't have the deep understanding of the music to really speak about it in a way that's appropriate to what it deserves and to what it actually is. And so... Again, this comes like we were talking about, like, there's no single right way to do analysis, but there are yes. wrong ways to do analysis. And one of them is this sort of, like, coming crashing in with no real understanding of the actual music and the culture behind it. And just, you know, smashing around like a bull in a china shop, making your own assumptions about how this actually works exactly the same as the music you do understand. Yeah. There's a thousand right ways and a thousand wrong ways to do all of this stuff. There are exactly 2,000 ways to analyze music. <laughs> yeah, to, to a dot. <laughs> yeah, no, we've, we've counted them. We yeah. don't have time. They don't fit in these margins, but <laughs> a little Fermat reference there. I think this has been a good discussion. It might be something that I want to revisit someday, kind of yeah. like a year down the line or anything, because I think it's, A, I just like, I like talking about myself. That's fun. But I think oh, it's yeah, something, absolutely. too, that is constantly evolving and yeah. and I think it's evolving as music discourse evolves it's evolving as the algorithm changes and grows and it's also something that in my head evolves the longer I do this because I've been doing this now for if you count the time that I like from when I first started writing a video before I even launched my channel I've been doing this for almost five years now and anybody who's been doing anything for five years should have gotten better at it. So I think I have Hopefully. a lot more perspective than I had in my early days. And I'm sure you're the same. You've been doing it even yeah. longer, right? Yeah, I mean, if you count like pre-time, like before we actually launched, yeah, we've been doing, I've been doing it for around seven years. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I th- I think there's something where along the way there's a lot of mistakes that you make doing this stuff, and yeah, one of the things that that sucks is that that's there, that's just out there on the internet forever. I mean, you can take the videos down, but that's really not good for your channel. And it also doesn't guarantee that it's not out there. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think something that's important is to have conversations like this and for aspiring creators out there to understand, like, it is important to think about what you do because even if you don't have a platform right now, you never know when a video might blow up and you never know when something that you didn't put that much thought into might suddenly hit the algorithm and get a million views. It's a yeah. weird space to be in. Yeah, I I do think that's important to keep in mind when you're starting out. I also think it's important not to be paralyzed by it, though. Oh, agreed, agreed, Because yeah. I think it's so easy to get so caught up in all the ways that this can go wrong that you never give yourself the chance to learn how to do it right. Yes. And... That's that's not to say, you know, that, you know, just go, just don't care, just go hog wild and say whatever you want, but think about it, but don't let thinking about it stop you from trying it, because as with so many things, like, there's such a steep learning curve, like, in on the technical side as well, in terms of learning how to make videos, but in terms of learning how to make videos ethically and learning how to do this in a way that's reasonable and appropriate, that takes practice, and... Yeah. Hopefully, you know, it doesn't take too much practice. And if you're sort of thinking consciously about it from the beginning, it can be easier to get to that place. But I mean, like like Noah was saying, like if we talked about this a year from now, we'd have a whole new set of things to say because like I'm still thinking about this. I'm still learning. I'm still developing my views on these sorts of topics. And Noah is too. And I think if you're doing something, especially if you're doing something with as high a potential impact as what we're doing and you're not constantly reevaluating and constantly questioning your understanding of the ethics of your work, that's bad. That is like much more concerning to me than you doing one thing that doesn't yeah. work and isn't right this time. I agree. The with much that. scarier thing is to just not care. Yeah. And the other thing that I want to hammer home at the end of the episode here, you had a tweet about this earlier this very day. We've talked a lot about kind of the some of the negatives of this and some of the challenges, but but please, please, if you have any interest in at, at all in doing what we do, just do it. Just start. The tweet you tweeted is, more people should make YouTube videos about music analysis. And I completely agree. Like, like it is a space, the more voices in this space, the better. So if you're considering, if you're considering doing what we do, Please, please just start and and tweet us your stuff. Yeah, let us, like, reach out. Like, if you have questions, Yeah, there's not infinite hours in the day. I can't guarantee that I can be, like, a personal mentor. But, like, if you want to, like, tweet a question at me, like, hey, 12-Tone, how do you... How do you deal with this? Or, hey, Polyphonic, how do you deal with this? Although, if you send that second one, probably send it to Noah, not me. Uh, But if you tweet at us or, like, tweet at Adam or tweet at whatever, like... It, especially if it's not like a super complicated question with like a five paragraph answer or like we'll try to get back. We we want there to be yes. more people doing this. We all like it's, it's one of those things where like to an extent it's a competitive field, but like music education, YouTube is such a small portion of YouTube that we're very much still in like a rising tides lift all boats situation where if there are more people doing this at a high level then we get recommended on their videos 
and the entire ecosystem grows. Also, the more people doing this, the more I learn about music, and the more I learn about music, the more ideas I have for videos, and the better those ideas are. Yeah, and also the more people doing this, the more likely people will realize that I'm actually pretty mediocre at my job, (laughs) and then I can just fade into obscurity and go retire in a cabin in the woods somewhere. Yes, that's the dream. So everyone wins. That's the dream. That's the only thing stopping you from retiring, is that everybody needs your your high-level analysis. I've I've put so much work into being an imposter <laughs> and I've gotten so good at it that I need people to find out before I can leave. That's, that's the only thing keeping me here. Uh, all right. Uh, do you have any more thoughts for this episode? Um, Adam Neely is good. I think the last thing that I would want to emphasize is that the YouTube algorithm kind of sucks. Yes. In a lot of ways. Yes. And one of the things that that means is that, Well, I I do think that people in positions like Noah and mine aren't that constrained on what we can talk about because, again, like like a flop, again, for Noah is like 50,000 views, and that's still a lot of people. So, And a flop for me is still like 20,000. So there's not like a huge constraint on what we can talk about, but there is this huge hidden constraint on who gets to be in a position to talk about whatever they want. And that constrains what sorts of things people in those positions want to talk about. And specifically, this speaks to the issue of getting marginalized creators in YouTube spaces and talking about like music from cultures other than dad rock. And there's yeah. pretty, like the people who get to that level mostly like dad rock. Like we don't, we're not not fans of bands like Pink Floyd, and we're not like, oh, well, crap, we have to talk about Pink Floyd again. We didn't make our channels, we didn't, like, build that audience making yeah. videos on stuff we hated. <laughs> yeah, that that's not the situation, but it, there is this bias in the algorithm towards specific kinds of music and specific kinds of people talking about specific kinds of music, and that results in fewer perspectives and... There's an extent, like I I said, I would love to help promote people from other cultures talking about their music. And I've done that a little. I'm not aware of enough channels doing that. So if you are aware of those channels or if you make those channels or if you like are considering making those channels, please let me know and I can do what I can to help. Yeah, in general, if you know of any smaller channels or you are a smaller channel doing interesting stuff on especially on marginalized musicians musicians from different cultures things like that please please like tweet your stuff at us like i really don't be shy yeah i think there's like a huge resistance to self-promo there's an extent to which i think that's good because i think that when you're starting out it's actually a good thing to not have a huge audience because it lets you sort of practice more freely but like once you sort of are you've gotten in the groove and you know what you're doing and you've gotten comfortable making videos and you're doing them regularly you should be telling people about your work and like if i tweet something that's like hey more people should be making videos about music analysis and you make videos about music analysis tell me let me know i want to (laughs) know like and when I tweeted that, I got some people be like, oh, here's my thing. But like a bunch of them were like, hey, sorry for the shameless self-promo. But it's like, no, there's nothing shameless about that. Yeah. Like, I mean, maybe there is something shameless about that, but not in a bad way. There's There shouldn't be shame about that. You should just be like, here's my thing. Yeah. And it's good. And I'm proud of it. And you should be proud of it. 
Yeah, be proud. Yeah, unless of what it's you, do. you know polyphonic, in which case don't be. Pr- no, oh, that's not. don't worry. I'm not proud of what <laughs> I do. <laughs> I want to know about more small channels doing music. So doing music analysis seriously, and I think there's not enough of that, and there's not enough, or there's not enough of that in my circles. So yeah, yeah, that's the end of that thought. Yeah, forever. And I think We're that's done. the end of this podcast. We solved ghost notes. <laughs> <laughs> what if we just ended it there and didn't tell them there was another episode coming? All right. Thank you all so much for listening. And thanks for letting us talk about ourselves for a little bit. We, yeah, this we, was very self-indulgent. Yeah, but we both enjoyed Hopefully it. you got something out of it. Yeah. Hopefully you understand now that we have the most difficult jobs ever. Yeah. We work so hard. You should feel very bad yeah, for us. Yeah. We are the most persecuted people on all of YouTube. (laughs) All right. Bye. Bye.